This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, a good Wednesday to you on this November 9th. Jesperson with Hicks. A Wednesday edition of the show uh, in just a second, like literally just like a few seconds from now, we're going to go to Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, uh, COP27 underway, and Zipporah Berman's going to join us. She's got a, a window in her schedule, I assume, before evening festivities there, whatever she's got going. And so we're going to get to that, and then we'll circle back to talk election results. But obviously today, in our neck of the woods, in our home province of Alberta, people are digesting last night's by-election results in Brooks Medicine hat long story short alberta premier danielle smith has her seat in the legislature with a win in that by-election uh but there are some interesting storylines here some will say well this isn't a story some will say this is a huge story what was the margin of victory how does her vote percentage stack up to the previous candidates uh win michaela glasgow michaela fry in that riding uh in 2019 what about the second place finisher not Barry Morishita, the former mayor in, in that town of Brooks, beautiful Brooks, Alberta. Of course, Barry Morishita had a big thing going. People were hoping to seize a lot of momentum there for the Alberta party. Well, the leader of the party finishing third. It was the NDP candidate, Gwendolyn Dirk, that finished second there. What do we read into that? We'll get into this today. It's perfect timing for an Alberta Municipalities Roundtable. We've got a couple of mayors and a city councilor joining us a little bit later on in the show, about a half an hour from now. We'll talk to, to Kathy Heron. We're going to talk to Tanya Thorne. She's the mayor of Okotoks. Uh, mayor Heron, of course, out of St. Albert. And Dylan Bressy, a councilor out of Grand Prairie. We'll talk about rural versus urban divides and synergies, and we'll talk politics. And of course, the U.S. midterm, the election results, some of them still being tabulated. We don't know yet if Herschel Walker is going to be a U.S. senator or whether it'll be Raphael Warnock. But what we do know is Ron DeSantis with a big win in Florida. What we do know is that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is now the governor of Arkansas. What we do know is that Dr. Oz is not a U.S. senator. Uh, Ron DeSantis, does this mean that he's maybe going to be the next American president? What does his momentum out of Florida look like? Donald Trump says he better not run. Trump says he's got some criticism coming. He's warning Ron DeSantis out of running. And of course, that's something that Sapria Devetti and I talked about in today's edition of Seriously, which is already out wherever you get your podcasts. Every Wednesday, you can find it. All the details at Seriously. Seriouslypod.com. Let's not leave our leadoff guest waiting. If you if you pay attention to environmental stories in Canada, you know exactly who Zipporah Berman is. She's an environmental activist. She's a campaigner. She's a writer. She's a public speaker in high demand, an adjunct professor out of the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University in Toronto. Kind enough to join us live from Egypt right now. Thanks for making time for us. Where, where do we find you specifically? At the moment, I'm at the New York Times Climate Forum event here in Sharm el Sheikh, uh, Egypt. Thanks so much for making time for us. And, and we know that there's a lot going on there. Um, different people will have different takes on COP and, and what they hope to see happen there. Different people will have different expectations with regards to, to, to the actual impact of some of the alliances, the pacts that are signed there. I mean, even I've even seen some people criticizing the, the sponsorship of, of big corporate giants like Coca-Cola, big polluters. Uh, why don't we start by just establishing why are you there? 
And what are your top priorities? What are you hoping to see? I'm here because this is where the world's governments meet, as well as scientists and experts from around the world on how to deal with climate change. And when I started coming to these discussions, I guess that was about 15 years ago, uh, we were talking about what would happen if we didn't constrain uh, pollution from fossil fuels. Now it's happening. Fires are sweeping the planet. We have a third of Pakistan underwater as a result of floods this year. We, we have droughts in the Horn of Africa right now. Uh, a person is dying every 36 seconds. So climate change is here now. There is an urgency uh, for uh, the world's governments to come together to address it. And for us to see the systems change necessary to have cleaner and safer energy systems. And we can only do that through international cooperation because it's not one country's problem. It's what, what happens in every country affects every person on the planet. So this is the place where you can talk to the most governments. And I am the chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a global uh, program to complement the Paris Agreement to constrain fossil fuels. And um, I'm here to talk to governments about that. Do you get the sense, I mean, when you take a look and, and you have the luxury of time and you can look back at, at, at some of the things that have developed since previous climate conferences, the UN climate conferences, do you believe that you can point to some tangible uh, progress that's been made or proof of performance, so to speak, on some of the agreements that are forged? Sure. Um, there has been progress. We signed the Paris Agreement now. I don't know how many years ago that was. Was that five or six years yeah. ago? And, and, and that agreement, before that agreement, we didn't have such ambitious climate targets. We didn't have a lot of countries putting in place the policies necessary to achieve those targets. So we're starting to have that now. That's really good. But if you add up all the government pledges from around the world, you still get a, a warming that's way above two degrees. Uh, the planet's only warmed now about 1.1 degrees and people are already suffering all over the world, not just in Pakistan, also in Canada, where we've seen more fires and floods and, and devastating costs as a result of that. So, so we still have a lot of work to do, but I think there are signs of hope. We, you know, I would note that this year there was more investment in clean energy, in, in renewable energy uh, than there was in, in fossil fuels. The, the demand uh, for fossil fuels has started to decrease, especially as a lot of countries put in place the policies to ban uh, fossil fuel cars and shift uh, transportation to electrification. We're starting to see more investment in, in a lot of solutions. Uh, pretty remarkable uh, story. Uh, the South Pacific Island nation of Tuvalu on, on Tuesday, just yesterday, urging countries at this climate summit to establish a global treaty to phase out the use of fossil fuels. These are these are uh, people in a part of the world that are literally seeing the landscape disappear. Uh, can you comment? I mean, I would imagine that that was something you were paying pretty close attention to. That's right in your wheelhouse. How did that message yesterday land in Egypt? Well, the fossil fuel treaty is something I started after my experience in Alberta, because what I realized is that every country wants to be the last barrel sold. But the problem is we all know that the science shows we need immediate decline in production and emissions of fossil fuels if we're going to keep our kids safe. And, and no country wants to do that if another country isn't. And while the Paris Agreement is good, it regulates emissions, who gets to pollute what, but it doesn't regulate production, how much we're producing on the planet and, and who gets to produce. And, and so it's a kind of a missing framework 
in climate policy and in climate negotiations. So uh, two years ago, I, I founded the Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty with a group of academics and lawyers and diplomats and uh, from around the world. And Tuvalu yesterday became the first country to put it on the floor uh, of, a, of the climate negotiations. Vanuatu, uh, another island nation, uh, became the first country to endorse it uh, in, at the UN General Assembly in the climate negotiations. Why is this important? Because we need countries to collaborate on who gets to produce what fossil fuels and how much. Mm. We need new systems of global governance and we need them quickly. So we've been studying nuclear nonproliferation and landmines and chemical weapons bans and realizing that treaties can happen fast when governments start to cooperate on principles of fairness and, and, and equity. And for too long, we've been letting the fossil fuel industry and oil and gas companies drive what gets to be produced. Today, we have renewable energy at scale. It's cheaper. And, and, and the scientists around the world are, are, are saying we could deploy it and it would have more jobs and people's health would be safer. One in five people today around the world die because of air pollution due to fossil fuels, let alone the impacts of climate change. We know we need to shift and we know it's hard for jurisdictions like Alberta, for Texas, for many countries like Malaysia. So we need countries to collaborate to support the jurisdictions that are going to have a hard time moving away from fossil fuels and, and, and honestly to push wealthy countries like Canada to do it quicker. What would that support look like? It, what we need is a plan. So we know we can't turn off the taps overnight. We all use fossil fuels today. But, but we need to stop expanding them. We keep talking about a transition and a just transition getting to net zero, but it, it's not a transition if we're growing the problem. So when we talk about support, what we mean is let's do, let's do new financial mechanisms. If wealthy countries taxed the oil and gas industry 10% of their profits, which were billions and are skyrocketing this year, that would be about 37 billion a year. If we stopped giving the wealthy oil and gas companies subsidies, uh, right now, globally, we give $11 million a minute uh, to the oil and gas industry in public taxpayer dollars and subsidies. If we stop doing that, that would free up billions of dollars that would then go to uh, countries that need support to put in place renewable infrastructure. So they're not constantly forced uh, to expand fossil fuels because we have the technology today and the solutions that we need we actually just don't have the systems put in place and we don't have governments who want to do it in part because they want to remain competitive. Mm. And that's why we need governments to cooperate. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty interesting. A couple of days ago, uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says, you know, calls on governments essentially to tax what he called the windfall profits of fossil yeah. fuel companies, right? And redirect that money to people global communities that are struggling with rising food and energy costs to countries that are suffering loss and damage you've named a couple already caused by the climate crisis of course the, the clap back or the objection from from big oil or from the fossil fuel industry is always questions about energy security right and that and, and it's obviously one that'll resonate with people because that's kind of a real yeah. life impact that people can forecast how do you answer that objection the fossil fuel industry has had about 200 years to provide energy security they're not working on providing energy to as many people as possible. They're working to, to create as much profits for themselves as possible. The fact is renewable energy is decentralized. It's owned by more people and more people benefit from it. And the news is it doesn't kill us or blow up. And so the fact is that we can now produce renewable energy at scale 
and we can provide more people with energy access than we can with fossil fuels. The fossil fuel system is what has gotten us into this mess, polluted air, polluted rivers, our kids with asthma, and now climate change. So we don't need to double down on a system that's not working. We need, we need the energy system of tomorrow, not the energy system of, yes, of yesterday. You and I have spoken several times, and, and obvi- obviously it was it was a pretty high-profile scenario when Alberta's then-premier Rachel Notley named you, I think you were co-chair, right, of her Oil Sands Advisory Group back in 2016. And, and And that was a move that she was widely criticized for, and you and I had fulsome conversations about that. I'm curious to know, over the last six years or so, uh, and in particular with regards to attitudes in Western Canada or attitudes of Canadians across the country, have you seen a shift have you seen a shift in what the average person thinks or feels about climate-related issues? Yeah, and the polls show that. People are scared because they're living with climate change every day now. Uh, people know that we're going to be moving away from fossil fuels. The, the debate that we're seeing really in the polling and in the focus groups is more about how quickly can we do it and, and fear about jobs and livelihood and, and, and price. But the fact is, it's not renewables or constraining fossil fuels that is increasing the price for the average person right now. It's the fossil fuel companies who literally are making record profits. I was actually uh, totally shocked when I started looking up what the profits were. The oil and gas industry has made 2.8 billion a day in pure profit every day for the last 50 years. And in the last year, while energy prices are skyrocketing, they're making more and more and more money and the subsidies we're giving to oil and gas companies have increased by 51% in wealthy countries just in the last year. So they have a lot of power. They're influencing our governments to get a hand on taxpayers' dollars. And they're sticking us with the bill because what we're left with, as people in Alberta well know, are the liabilities and the cleanup costs, which end up being something that the public has to pay for, even, these, even though these companies made billions and billions of dollars. So what the fossil fuel treaty does and what I'm asking for here at COP is for countries to put in place a plan because there will be a transition out of fossil fuels. But if we plan for a managed phase out of fossil fuels, if we actually say, look, production is going to have to decline and let's estimate how many jobs that is. Let's put in place a plan for economic diversification and new jobs because clean energy has more jobs in it than fossil fuels, then, then no worker or their family will be left behind. But if we just pretend this isn't happening and we allow another boom and bust, well, then people are going to suffer. An unmanaged decline is a lot harder than a managed decline. Hmm. Uh, with regards to your advocacy or your lobbying, um, are, is, there, is there a delegation or is there a nation or is there a group of nations? Is there a, a world leader in particular that you would describe as, as more receptive to your message than others? Is, is, is there a nation that kind of stands out? Yeah, there are many. I mean, the, certainly the Pacific Island nations are showing a lot of leadership because probably because they have on climate for many, many years because they are literally feeling the impacts of climate change uh, more than most other nations. But I would say I've also seen a lot of countries like Denmark um, in uh, Costa Rica and others who have joined the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, who are showing a lot of leadership. There's now 12 countries who have joined the alliance committing to stop expansion of fossil fuels and, and, and wind down. And on the fossil fuel treaty, we're seeing a lot of support from other leaders, from, from faith leaders. The Vatican has now supported the concept, as well as hundreds of faith organizations around the world. 
And the World Health Organization, the WHO, has now endorsed the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. So uh, scientists, you know, here at, at COP and around the world, we, we have 3,000 scientists that have already endorsed this, this idea. So it's, it's gaining speed very quickly because people realize that the science is there. And yesterday, interestingly enough, we heard the high-level expert group for the United Nations recommend that definitions of net zero do not include any new fossil fuels, even new gas or LNG, no new fossil fuel infrastructure in line with the science. And that net zero has to be about moving to renewables and solutions. And who announced that? Catherine McKenna, hmm. who was the uh, UN advisor and the, the chair of that panel. Based on the work that you're doing and based on the focus of your work right now, it makes sense that we're talking uh, about predominantly fossil fuels, about oil and gas. But I'm curious for your assessment on some of the other areas, uh, environmentally related, mm -hmm. industry related, economically related and otherwise. And I take a look at our live chat on, on YouTube right now. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to Zipporah Berman. Uh, people want to hear your, your take on hydrogen. They want to hear your take on water. People want to hear your take on animal agriculture. I mean, people can check out okay. stand.earth, and I, and I know I'm just opening like can after can after can right now, but uh, people <laughs> can check. Let's try and get to as many yeah, as you can, though. Yeah, you know, sure, but, or even just a general comment at stand.earth. People can see more about what you and the team there is doing. You know, you talk about delivering large-scale solutions to climate and environmental problems worldwide. We, we can talk about fisheries. We can talk about forestry. We can talk about mining. As you look beyond yeah. oil and gas, right, what are some of the key issues that you're focusing on? Um, I I would also people I would also encourage people to check out uh, fossilfueltreaty.org, which is our new initiative um, that I chair. So yes, the campaigns at Standotter, which are which are great, and then and fossilfueltreaty.org as well. Um, so let's look at a couple of these issues. Hydrogen, very interesting, very important, um, and um, we need to be investing in green hydrogen. So there's a lot of uh, conversation about hydrogen. The future of any hydrogen, if there is going to be one, is in green hydrogen. That means hydrogen that is actually fueled by renewable energy and not by gas and more fossil fuels. Um, there's a lot of talk uh, about that here at COP. We can't afford right now to invest in more fossil fuels because we know that every ton of carbon that we save from getting stuck in the atmosphere and smothering the earth is going to save lives. And that's the bottom line. We we have to move away from fossil fuels. And so hydrogen fits in that bucket. But let me talk about water. Um, one of the biggest issues right now and, and some really important reports coming out on droughts and water scarcity. A lot of countries are already experiencing that. Um, devastating here at COP27 to go to some of the scientific panels and especially some of the panels with experts from the global south, from, from the Horn of Africa, where people literally don't have water to drink, yeah. millions of people. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and no water uh, for crops. And, and that is, the scientists here are very clear from around the world, that is a direct result of climate change, and it's going to get worse in the future. So we need to protect, especially in Canada, what we have. The idea right now that we're allowing, for example, tailings from mining to go right into fresh water uh, is, is crazy. We are so lucky in Canada to have uh, the access that we have to fresh water uh, we need to protect it. On, on forests, a lot of calls here uh, for emergency forest protection. Uh, forests are uh, critical 
to maintaining e ecological stability and ecosystem services. What does that actually mean? It actually means the water we drink and the air we breathe. Uh, the fact is that 80% of the world's intact forests are already gone. We have about 20% left, probably less than that now. A lot of that is in Canada. Uh, also, of course, Brazil and, and, and Russia. We need to protect what old growth forests and primary forests and intact forests we have left as carbon storehouses and, and, and critical to hydrological systems and protecting the world's water. Glad that our country has, has committed to the 30 by 30 initiative, which is protecting 30%. Uh, of the forests uh, left on the planet. Um, but it's a bit, hi uh, I would say, hypocritical because we're still logging at very fast rates in Canada. Um, and we're still logging old growth forests, especially in British Columbia. And, and that, needs, that needs to stop hydrogen, forests, water. There are a lot of issues. You're ticking there, the right? boxes. I, I appreciate it. And I just rattled off the laundry list and you've hit on most of them. I am curious to hear your take. I know the audience is as well on animal agriculture. Don't have to tell you that's big business as well. It, it It's huge. And, and we're starting to see some really interesting conversations internationally around regenerative um, agriculture that is really important. And, you know, the, the, the hard truth is that the, the, um, the further you go up the food chain, so if you eat plants, if you have a plant-based diet, a, a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet, then you have less of a carbon footprint, you have less of a water footprint. The further you go up the chain, if you eat red meat, um, then it's much higher carbon. Uh, and, and also, of course, animal agriculture has huge methane uh, uh, implications. And, and so uh, the move towards eating less meat, eating lower down on the food chain is absolutely critical. But we also need laws in place to ensure that uh, the agricultural systems that we have are, are regenerative, that we're supporting and making sure uh, that we're supporting the soil, that agriculture is not dependent on fossil fuels and petrochemical. It's not my area, but I've read a couple of the great reports that have come out here at COP. And then I think we're seeing kind of leaps and bounds in those recommendations uh, on how to make agriculture more sustainable. I think in the future, the issues we're going to be facing on round food is that it's going to cost more and it already is because you have so many areas now of the planet that are either experiencing drought or flood and that's affecting crops. And so we've already seen a doubling of costs of a lot of staples around the world, rice, flour, et cetera. That's going to get worse. It's going to get harder and more expensive to get what's considered luxury products like coffee, which I consider more of a necessity, necessity these days, thank you. <laughs> chocolate, things like that. Um, and so we need to prepare for rising food costs. And we also need to prepare for disruptions in um, as we adapt to a changing climate in the transportation of food. So what does that mean? We need to grow more and we need to support local community sustainable agriculture. We need to support more food production within cities um, so it's accessible to people. Uh, and it's cheaper. I want to ask you one thing. I promised your team, Zipporah, that we wouldn't keep you past 6 p.m. Egypt time. And we really appreciate your availability. So I'll make this the last question. Uh, it's more on the politics of the entire thing. And, and, and I'm talking provincial mm -hmm. versus federal and then international politics. I, I know that you are aware that Alberta uh, changed its tune and decided to send a delegation to COP this time around. Alberta did not send a delegation under former Premier uh, Jason Kenney. Energy Minister Sonia 
Savage leading that delegation and the implication, not the implication, it's been plainly stated by Premier Danielle Smith that she does not believe that the federal government has Alberta's best interests at heart. Your take on the political dynamic there and the message that it sends to the international community as well with both Alberta and Canada sending what appear to be almost competing delegations. I think the message that both Alberta and Canada are sending right now is, um, quite frankly, a little embarrassing. We are in a climate emergency. The world's uh, governments have agreed on that, including our own, um, that we have very little time uh, to dramatically decrease emissions. The science is saying we have to decrease fossil fuel emissions by 45 uh, percent between now and 2030 but we're on track to dramatically increase it, both production and emissions. So the idea that the Canadian delegation, the federal delegation includes uh, oil industry executives coming to the climate negotiations. Look, we need to work with the oil industry to clean up uh, the current practices and manage a wind down of production. These companies are not gonna design their own demise and they have no place in, in the negotiations for the public good on, on how we reduce our dependence on their products. And Alberta coming to COP to talk about how great fossil fuel production is, is so tone deaf on the international stage um, that it literally uh, makes no sense. And I think it is uh, holding us back. And I think it's really embarrassing. And I think it's because of the fossil, the power of the fossil fuel industry. There's a lot of data to show, especially in Canada, Oil and gas companies had 11,000 meetings uh, with, the, with the federal government alone in the last seven years. That's about six a day. And, and it's even more uh, in, in Alberta. They're influencing our politics. There's a lot of academic research saying they're weakening our policies to our detriment because it, every day we don't act, it costs us more. And again, there's lots of economic research uh, that shows shows that. And I'll, and I'll leave you with one thought. I, I just read a new report from Oxford University Switching to renewables will save the world trillions, says the report. Switching from fossil fuels to renewables is not only feasible, but it'll save the world at least at 12 trillion by 2050. And, and in contrast, this week we heard in a new study that losses due to extreme heat due to climate change are estimated to cost between 5 trillion and 29 trillion globally just from heat waves. So climate change is already costing us money, a lot of money, uh, and, and switching to renewables will save us money. And it will also save lives. All those people who are dying, one in five people globally die from air pollution due to fossil fuels. So we know what the cleaner, safer energy systems are, and it's time that both levels of government start putting in place policies that are designed to help the people and the workers and their families and 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 not the big polluters. I just I want to ask you just first. I haven't heard that one in five people die globally due to air pollution from. That's a Harvard What's, study from last year. Okay, we'll do. It's we'll Google it. Groundbreaking. We'll Google it. Uh, people can check out fossilfueltreaty.org if they want to learn more about what you're doing. Uh, so says the homepage. A cop that doesn't address fossil fuels is a cop that doesn't address the root cause of the climate crisis. We've been speaking with Zipporah Berman live from COP27 in Egypt. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Take yeah, care. You bet. You can follow her on Twitter at Zipporah. That's a hell of a stat. A Harvard study, she says. A we'll lot Google of those Harvard stats, study, one I was five. like 2.8 billion a day is what oil and gas is making? 2.8 billion a day? Wow. 
I'm looking at uh, ucl.ac.uk. Fossil fuel air pollution responsible for one in five deaths worldwide. This is the first that I'm seeing. It was published uh, on uh, the 9th of February, 2021. Study shows that more than 8 million people around the globe die each year as a result of breathing in air containing particles from burning fuels like coal, petrol, and diesel, which aggravate respiratory conditions like asthma can lead to lung cancer, coronary heart disease, strokes, and early death. Uh, The research led by Harvard University in collaboration with UCL, the University of Birmingham, Bamingham, and the University of Leicester has been published in the journal Environmental Research. Wow. Appreciate Zipporah's time. There's a lot to catch up on. Like, obviously, uh, well, I mean, climate change and, and the world going to hell in a handbasket is always a top priority, and, <laughs> and we appreciate her availability. There was a window in her schedule. Dun, dun, dun. But I know people want to talk about the by-election results in Brooks Medicine Hat. We have, obviously, a strong Alberta audience, a strong Western Canadian audience, and, and, and we're going to do that in just a quick second. In the U.S. midterm election results as well, uh, John Fetterman winning, that like post-stroke. That yeah. was that was a big one. Yeah. And, and I've seen some people you know people are i i think oh i think it's okay to question whether or not someone is is fit for office that soon after a major medical incident mm-hmm. he had some issues during the debate just with regards to the cognitive ability and all that kind of jazz but people all that kind of jazz uh, pardon my high level political commentary <laughs> but people also saying he also represents a lot that's good and right about politics Mm -hmm. and so we can talk about that too you can let us know real talkers what you're thinking Uh, these conversations happen of course because of sponsors like our friends at kubi renewable energy and i want to give a shout out to their ceo jake kubiski who last night officially walked across the stage uh, to accept his honor as one of edmonton's top 40 under 40 as named and recognized by edify magazine Jake, you know his story. You've heard it here on Real Talk before. A long and successful history in oil and gas. Uh, He was a journeyman electrician. Then he saw where industry was going, uh, wanted some stability for his family, wanted to have a long runway. He's a young guy. And so he founded Kubi Energy, now one of Canada's most prominent solar installers. Tesla certified. Uh, They've only got journeymen and apprentices up on the roofs doing the installs. A ton of credibility there. KubiEnergy.ca is where you can get your free quote for solar today. And from our team to the team at Kubi, congratulations, Jake, on the top 40 honor. Our friends at Park Power, well, they're not going to uh, I mean, they make no bones about it. It's obvious what's happening right now. It's it's getting cold out. It's getting darker sooner. It's staying darker later. It means that people are going to be using more power. People are going to be using more natural gas. That's just the way that it goes. And, and hey, you may be using more internet as well, John, if you're inside cuddling up, wearing your Uggs and streaming Netflix Uggs, or Disney Plus me. if you didn't cancel it. No, you're not wearing Uggs, are you? <laughs> Does Uggs have like a vegan branch? I, I'm Where not they, sure. They, they make it out of... Uh, I'm not sure. What would it be made out of? I don't know. Let's not get <laughs> off to Park Powers. Like, would you mind mentioning our promo code? And would you, would you mind talking to people about bundling utilities and, and saving money on admin costs? That's exactly what they do. Compare rates today, whether you're on the variable or fixed rate. If you have a fear of commitment, uh, Park Power is speaking your language. You can cancel with them anytime if you find a better deal. But hey, spoiler, you're not going to. The promo code 2022-REALTALK knocks $70 off your first bill at parkpower.ca. At Eden Landscaping, they understand bringing outdoor spaces to life. They're in the business of curing boring front and backyards. And one of the trends that they're doing, you want to talk about environmental sustainability in design? They've got this urban front yard butterfly approach. It attracts the pollinators. It integrates native grasses 
It's where the trends are going, and it's being driven in Alberta by Eden Landscaping. You can check them out online, browse their portfolio, and get the ball rolling so you can break ground in the spring at landscapeedmonton.ca. And if your spring is going to be a time of renewal with regards to your personal life, with regards to your career, why not today visit AthabascaU.ca? It's Canada's open university. And the reason why tens of thousands of Canadians choose Athabasca University, the world-class accredited online programs and courses offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. What does that mean in real life terms? Well, if you're keeping an eye on some of the discount airline options and you need to take off for a couple of weeks to get the sand between your toes, you're not gonna fall behind in class. That's what it means. It means that if there's an illness in the family or if you're feeling burnt out or you just need a mental health break, you're not gonna fall behind. You dictate the pace. You dictate how long it's going to take to get that program done. Heck, some of you are going to work ahead of pace. That's the way it works at AthabascaU.ca. We'll check in with our Alberta Municipalities Roundtable in just a second. Eager to pick their brains on what we saw out of Brooks Medicine Hat last night. For those of you that haven't seen the results, and of course they fluctuate a little bit, whether you saw them at 9 o'clock last night or midnight last night or 6 o'clock this morning. But the gist of it is, I mean, the headline reads that Alberta Premier Daniel Smith has her seat in the Alberta legislature. Uh, She won. She won by about uh, 30 points, Uh, 54.5% is the number that we're looking at, about 54%. Now, people are going to be saying the margin of victory is not what it should have been in a conservative stronghold like Brooks Medicine Hat. People are going to be saying she should have won by more than Michaela Glasgow or Michaela Fry did uh, back in 2019, about 60%. Some people are going to be saying it should have been a blowout. This doesn't represent a mandate. I mean, the facts of the matter are she won, and so she's in the legislature, and she's not going to have to run again. In another riding, people were looking at Calgary Elbow, which is waiting on a by-election. I know I don't have to tell you that. But what are some of the other storylines? What are some of the other interesting points? You know, you should follow Graham Thompson, if you don't already, online at G. Thompson, Inc., the longtime provincial political pundit. I saw him tweet just a short time ago, late last night. In politics, says Graham, a win is a win is a win, unless... You're a premier running in a cherry-picked seat where you only squeak out a victory, you lose urban polls to the NDP, more on that in a second, and you capture a lower percentage support than the neophyte UCP candidate in 2019. Then the win is a warning. And I think Graham might be on to something there. The warning element of it. The city of Medicine Hat essentially voted for the NDP. I saw about 17 out of 26 ridings. The NDP won there. This this was the candidate, Gwendolyn Dirk, you remember? And I was talking about her, and and we were talking over the past couple of days on on whether or not there should have been an agreement reached between the NDP and the Alberta Party uh, to get Alberta Party leader Barry Morishita into the legislature in his home riding, right? Barry, the former mayor of Brooks, you know that. Well, that's not the way that it worked out. The NDP candidate, Gwendolyn Dirk, with 26% of the vote. Barry Morishita, 10 points lower there at 16%. So what do you read into that? What do you read into that with regards to the future of the NDP in southern Alberta? You have to assume that behind closed doors, they didn't expect to win. They would have loved to win, and they fought like they were, they campaigned like they were expecting to win. But I would suggest 
that the election results, the by-election results last night are probably a big encouragement uh, to the NDP. And of course, they will run the same candidate in that riding again in May of next year. And we'll see what happens. The medicine hat progress there. I mean, what does that say about the folks living in that city? What does that say about what has been perceived as a conservative stronghold? And then if you're Barry Morishita or if you're an Alberta party strategist, what do you take from last night's results? I wouldn't count Barry out. Something tells me that they're going to find a way to make sure that the Alberta party is not perceived to have had a fork stuck in it last night by voters. Does Barry run in Calgary Elbow, right? Calgary Elbow has sent an Alberta party MLA to the legislature, Greg Clark. Everybody knows that. Is that a riding that the Alberta party might win? Now, I know that there's already a candidate there. Kerry Cundell really wants to win Calgary Elbow for the Alberta party. Crazier things have happened. And I'll be curious to see what the future of the Alberta party looks like there. So you can send us your thoughts on the by-election results last night to talk at ryanjesperson.com. The pundits, the partisan ones, obviously have their own takes on this, but real talkers, we want to know where you land on it. Does the margin of victory matter or does the victory matter, period? Of course, we'll be curious to know what you send us uh, over the next couple of days. And John, I I wonder if maybe there might be a trash talk submission or two based on this by-election. From the comments in YouTube, I think there'll be a few. You think there might be? All right. Donna says, even uh, though they didn't win, uh, if they didn't run, that may have been a mistake as people obviously like the NDP. Talking about the NDP and the Alberta Party coming to an agreement, right? Dwayne says, this shows that Danielle Smith is only there for herself and she's not there for Albertans. Uh, Dwayne, develop the thought, if you would. I'd be curious. Now, people are going to wonder how much attention will she pay to that writing? It's not where she lives, right? She insisted on this show that it was important that she run in a rural riding, not an urban riding. When we asked why she wouldn't run in Calgary Elbow, I asked her directly, is it because you don't think you can win in Calgary Elbow? If you missed that, you can check out the, what was it, October 3rd, I think, episode of Real Talk. It was our first one in this new studio. Uh, Jason says, hopefully Drew Barnes is shaken in his boots. I go back to the word that Graham Thompson invoked, the warning, a warning. You have to assume that most United Conservative Party supporters thought that Danielle Smith would win by 70 plus. Don't you not win by 70, but win with 70 plus. I mean, those were the numbers. I saw people talking mid 60s to, to 70s. Are we reading too much into this? Are we getting too much into the weeds with regards to the actual numbers? I don't think so. This isn't just a United Conservative Party candidate. This is the leader of the party. This is the premier of Alberta. So expectations are obviously high, right? I asked Dwayne to follow up, and he's doing it in real time. He says, well, why I said that, that Smith, only there for herself, not for Albertans, is because Calgary Elbow still lacks an MLA, right? After the United Conservative Party MLA and Minister Doug Schreitzer resigned. Okay, She says it's too close to the general election to be bothering with all the by-elections, and she needed to get her seat in the legislature. That was the justification for it. Heidi says, my issue with Danielle Smith is that she's dangerously smart. Uh, We've all gone down rabbit holes, and in this day and age, nuance has been removed, and conviction matters regardless of what that might be. 
I'm curious to know what our panelists are going to say about this <laughs> with the Alberta municipalities coming up. The timing just couldn't be better. It couldn't be better, John. This conversation in this next interview is presented by our great friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park who invite you to enjoy layers of celebration with a Dairy Queen cake. Any occasion is a happy occasion with a Dairy Queen cake. Why not make an occasion out of thin air by bringing home a DQ cake, or as I've recommended in past, and please take it seriously, a Treatsa Pizza. In my mind, the most underrated offering at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and that beautiful new location, the revamped, reinvented location in Sherwood Park on Baseline Road. Our shout out to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park today. Hey, while you're out in Sherwood Park, why not visit Sherwood Dodge? They invite you to pop in and browse their selection. The 2022 Dodge Durango, the Jeep Grand Cherokee, North America's best selling SUV in history. And of course, the full size, that beautiful 2022 Jeep Wagoneer. If you're not going to be in Sherwood Park and you'd rather shop from the comfort of your own home, you can chat directly with a member of their sales team online at stalbertdodge.com, at sherwooddodge.com, or you can link to them under the Sponsors tab on our website. Every couple of months, uh, we endeavor to check in with our friends at Alberta Municipalities. They do the great work. These are elected representatives, mayors, and councillors from a number of different communities across the province of Alberta, working together collaboratively to work with the provincial government and in some circumstances as well, obviously, to interact with the federal government. These are the politicians, these are the elected representatives that are running into their constituents at gas pumps and at grocery stores. These are the ones that are intensely and intimately familiar with the issues that matter to people, and they're the ones charged with finding solutions to those challenges. Mayor Kathy Heron was re-elected mayor of the city of St. Albert for a second term back in 2021, but she served on that city council since 2009. She was elected president of Alberta municipalities as well in 2021, a big year for her. Tanya Thorne was elected the mayor of the town of Okotoks in 2021, following two terms on town council as well. Uh, When elected, she stated to her, constituents that her goal was to strengthen the resiliency of her town and continue to create an exceptional community with opportunity for residents and entrepreneurs. And Dylan Bressy, uh, in addition to being one of planet Earth's most prominent disc golf stars, is also a city councillor in the city of Grand Prairie, elected in 2017, re-elected in 2021. He moved to Grand Prairie about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I think, to create community connections in particular for young people. That's how you infuse energy into a municipality. It's wonderful to see the three of you here. The timing of this Real Talk Roundtable, pretty fabulous because we've got a by-election to talk about. Uh, Mayor Heron, you got a big smile on your face because, you know, there. I don't even know where you're going to hit this from. There's a number of different angles on this. Let me keep the question general out of the gates. What is your key observation from what we saw last night, voters in Brooks Medicine Hat? I'm pretty proud of Barry Marchita. I'll, I'll start with that. Um, you know, we, 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 we were thinking we would be talking today a little bit about the relationship with the provincial government and municipalities, and I hope we do get there. Um, but Barry, 
you know, being a former mayor and the, uh, holding my role as president of this association years ago, he understands municipal uh, issues so deeply and cares so deeply about them. I would have loved to have seen him get uh, elected. And I, I know he will be back and I know he'll be strong in the future. 16% of the vote was huge for the Alberta party. So I think he should be very proud of himself this morning. Yeah, the 16% that Barry saw at the polls last night is is significantly higher it's more than triple uh where the party's been polling with regards to civic polls and and, and political support across the province so that's obviously got to be a big win i described him yesterday on the show as an experienced and capable political leader so we'll see what his future looks like I, i guarantee that there's no way he's looking at this and saying well i guess we're all finished and done with that uh mayor thorne what do you think what are you taking away from what you saw last night out of brooks medicine hat Um, For me, actually, I think the bigger issue that I think we need to be worried about as elected officials is voter apathy. Recognize that it is a by-election, typically a low voter turnout to start with. But when you've got a premier running in a riding and voter turnout is lower than most typical by-elections, I think that is a warning sign, to use the words you've used for Mm. um, earlier, It's a warning sign that we're seeing that we're seeing this downward trend in all elections um, in the province of Alberta of lower voter turnout. And apathy to me is the demise of democracy. Hmm. Um, The more voter apathy we have is the greater risk we have to democracy. And and, And I think that that is a warning signal that we as Albertans and residents here need to really think about. And how do we engage that voter to get re engaged in politics? And um, show up and uh, participate um, with that privilege mm-hmm. of voting. Yeah, number I saw just under thirty-seven percent uh, eligible voter turnout, which is, I mean, if, one in three. It just it blows my mind. It blows my mind. I'm I'm still I'm still the optimist. I'm still I'm still the one that's like hoping to see eighty-five percent voter turnout in an election. But but I don't know. Uh, Johnny just about choked on his coffee when I dropped that number. Uh, Councillor Bressy. <laughs> Before we move the conversation on, I'm curious to know, I know, I know that Grand Prairie is a long way, relatively speaking, from Brooks Medicine Hat, uh, but what do you take away from last night's results? Well, for me, I love watching by-elections because this is my local government bias. By-elections focus on local issues more than provincial elections mm-hmm. usually yep. do. And there's that old saying of all politics is local, but that's just not the case anymore. And I think if we want to increase that voter turnout, if we want to get more people participating, I think we need to start helping them understand how the decisions they make in elections impact their local communities. So I loved watching that by-election. Just see what the folks in Medicine Hat are talking about. I think that's such a great point, and I appreciate you making it. Uh, let's let's provide some context here. Uh, the Alberta Municipalities 2022 Convention, relatively recently, uh, it was in late September, so let's call it a month and a half ago. Uh, at that point, Danielle Smith still competing for the leadership of the United Conservative Party, but she spoke uh, to the hundreds of people in attendance and characterized the relationship between the provincial government and municipalities as strained. Uh, that's the word that she used. And and that kind of aligns with some of the conversations that we've had in these Alberta municipalities roundtables. Nobody denies that. Uh, Mayor Heron, you're the president of Alberta municipalities right now. You're nodding your head. You agree with her assessment, I'm assuming. But now that she's premier, now that she's won her seat in the Alberta legislature, what does that mean moving forward? Uh, she's used um, the term that she feels like the province is the child of, of the federal government. And we, we use the same analogy that we, we're, we're, we're not recognized in the constitution, but we are duly elected. Like people go to the ballot 
and choose the three of us to sit and serve their local needs in their community. So I, I feel that there's a lot of um, democracy behind our positions and we need to we need to establish that relationship. There's big issues going on in um, Alberta right now. We've got problems with healthcare. We've got problems with EMS. We've got infrastructure problems, you know, education. And not all of those are local issues. Many of them are. Uh, but they're not going to be solved by one level of government. The provincial government needs to hear what we have to say. And because we don't come to the table with problems and issues, we come to the table with solutions. And so she absolutely needs to hear what we have to say. And in order to protect this province, protect this country, uh, I would add, so um, I've had my first meeting with Rebecca Schultz and I'm going to be seeing her in a few minutes. She's she's a fantastic appointment to municipal affairs. I'm very excited to work with her. She's She uses the terms... I will listen, but I will also hear, which I love. I love that. Uh. And so there could be a reset in that relationship between the municipal government and the provincial government. Let me ask, when you say she's a fantastic appointment, she she was obviously one of the UCP leadership candidates, former Minister of Children's Services. I, I think with respect to that portfolio, uh, that municipal affairs is a promotion uh it was obviously a show of support by her new boss her former uh competitor in that race what do you specifically like about minister schultz what i like about well for, many of it's personal i i uh, i quite like her personally we get along quite well we text and, and visit quite frequently um but I, I like the fact that during the campaign she she didn't swayed too far left or too far right you know within the boundaries of a, of a leadership she did uh, she did her work she traveled and traveled and traveled and and met with so many locally elected people that um i think she understands the issues she's very much like our former minister minister macgyver who i very much had a lot of respect for as well i've seen uh, probably 10 municipal affairs ministers in my time can't i can't even count there's been a roller coaster of them uh, some of them approach the job as they are the authoritarian guard and to keep municipalities in line. And that's not the approach that, that works. Minister MacGyver approached it as he was the minister of everything. He would We could approach him with infrastructure issues, housing issues, and he would help. And that is exactly what Minister Schultz is promising to do. Uh, Mayor Thorne, I, I know it's not lost on you. It's not lost on me that, that the conversations about relationships or interactions between municipal governments and the provincial government over the past couple of years have, have been have been very tense. I mean, there's been talk about, you know, you know, funding that's been that's been either pulled or how, how different municipalities are on the hook for, for costs like policing or we've we've talked about, you know, centralizing EMS. I mean, there's a lot of conversations that have happened and very few of them have been positive. But 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 now people are talking about better funding models and more cooperation and more power to the municipalities when it comes to the day to day operations of, let's say, a town like Okotoks. What's something specific? that you would be looking for that you think could make a big impact almost immediately we hear you laughing well, there, Aaron. we can hear you laughing i know what she's gonna say <laughs> uh, you know it's a bit of a loaded question but i i think that at this state in the game for me we've had lots of talk we use lots of buzzwords of we're going to be partners we're going to you know work together for me, we're at that state now that I just really like to see some action. So show me deliverables on, on that action. And we all know that 
policing is a file that I'm very active on, which is why Kathy's laughing. <laughs> but is is let's actually have a real conversation about a policing model. Um, so let's talk about public safety in its entirety. Um, instead of just saying, we're going to change the label on it, create a box that's very similar to the box you currently have, and it'll be a better box. Let's actually engage residents in Alberta, municipal leaders, and talk about community safety in its entirety, because there's many elements that feed into that. And so if you truly believe we're partners, then let us come forward, like Kathy um, mentioned earlier. We don't come to the table with our hands out. Well, we always have our hands out because we're at the least funded level of government, but we come to the table with very pragmatic, viable solutions because that's what we have to do as municipal leaders. We work with shoestring budgets sometimes, and we're the first people that people call when things aren't going well for them individually in their communities, in their province, we hear from them first. And so we have this ability to create some really creative ideas because we, we have to. And so we have thoughts on how to make things better. So that for me, I think is the key. If, if you really actually believe that we are um, a, a partner, well, then let's have a whole new discussion on policing and actually create a public safety task force. We've talked about that before. That would be for me an indicator that the conversation is going to change. Tracy's watching us live on, on our YouTube chat says interesting perspectives. Sure. Uh, Tracy says, I doubt very much that we're going to see too many significant changes that move away from the Kenny style of this or the Kenny platform, so to speak. Tracy says, hopefully local governments can get more assistance with people services. Uh, Councillor Bressy, uh, Alberta's new premier has talked about giving municipalities, quote, greater respect and more resources. If she delivers on that, it's a positive. What would that look like for Grand Prairie? What would be top on your wish list that we've not yet talked about? Well, and I know for us, it's labor attraction and retention is the big issue that Alberta's having right now. It's the big issue in our economy. It's the big issue in our healthcare system. It's we need to have these strong, viable, awesome communities to live in. And I know for us, when we're trying to attract people to our region, we're also trying to figure out how do we invest properly in infrastructure so that the infrastructure we build today isn't crumbling 20 years from now. And right now, some of the changes in provincial funding, where there's going to be a funding cut of 40% in infrastructure funding to municipalities, there's going to be hard decisions about how are we both building these viable communities today and also take care of them into the future. I know for us, we've got a north end of the city that needs more recreation. We've got some public safety concerns that we're trying to figure out. And that's not unique to Alberta. That's every community has got these challenges that we're just looking for partnerships to figure out how do we make our local people say to their friends across the country, this is the community we want to live in and build community in. I've been and, and I've, I've sort of referenced this uh, this uh, a couple of times this morning in analyzing and I mean it's, it's the mandate of a show like this in analyzing the results of this by-election last night I've seen a lot of people focusing on what the city of Medicine Hat did versus what the rural communities did and how it all played out in the election results and, and we can have bigger conversations about that and and zoom way out from that one riding I mean that's one of 87 provincial ridings let's talk about municipalities the 
the urban versus rural discussion. Obviously, we're all in this together, and there are urban <laughs> municipalities and there are rural municipalities represented by Alberta municipalities. But there are different realities in the in the rural communities. There are different challenges. There are different benefits. There are, I mean, they are different worlds, so to speak. Now, none of the three of you would really qualify as a rural municipality right okotoks grand prairie st albert but but let's talk about the importance of serving and preserving and boosting rural municipalities mayor heron where does that need to start what's not being done right now that could be done and needs to be done first of all i've got the song we're all in this together in my head right now so thanks for that (laughs) you're quite welcome yeah yeah, and you know where I am right now? I'm actually at the Edmonton Convention Center, and I'm at the Rural Municipalities of Alberta Convention. I think it's, we, our association has always really wanted to work very closely with that association to understand the issues, because we are so intertwined. Um, it's funny that Danielle wanted to run in a rural riding. Medicine Hat is not rural, and neither is Brooks. Mm. The mayor of Brooks was the president of our association, so these are urban centers, and the urban centers, whether it's a a, a town of, of Okotoks of 30,000, you're somewhere around there, um, the rural neighbors are coming into our centers to use those recreation facilities that Dylan just referred to. They are living in our cities and working in the rural areas, you know, especially in my area in the industrial heartland. Um, so we're completely intertwined, and, and I, I honestly cannot stand the conversation of urban-rural divide. We need to work much more closely together, and, and for certain, when you're talking about labor attraction, to create a community um, that has that live, work, play kind of feeling that you're really comfortable, that you have neighbors, that you're confident, you have social services. That happens in an urban center. That happens in the in this the municipalities that the three of us are representing here today. But they, those people are working and serving in the rural areas, whether it's oil and gas or agriculture or forestry. And it, their issues should not be divided. They absolutely should not be thought of separately. And that um, is the frustrating part I find with the way our provincial government is headed in the future with, with really just two parties duking it out for the May election. And they're talking about who's going to get rural ridings and who's going to get urban. Just drop the words. I'm, I'm tired of it. Just drop the words and try to get Albertans on board. Well, and I, I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's it's interesting to point out and, and I don't know which one of you wants to take this, maybe all three. I mean, just even even we're talking here today. I mean, people, people can check out your website, abmunis.ca. I mean, there there was recently, like within the last year, a, a rebrand, right? I mean, you rebranded from yeah. the AUMA, the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association to Alberta Municipalities and and. and I want to assume that that's because some communities kind of can't quite pin down whether they're rural 100%. or is that is that a fair observation? A hundred percent. We did a lot of work, yeah, in that rebranding, and we dropped the word urban because our members who live, let's say, in Bonacord, you know, which is a which is part of our association, but they consider themselves rural, so they don't want to be identified as urban or rural. They don't identify with with the rural municipalities association, so we just drop the word. Yeah, just like just get rid of it. Let's just talk about municipalities in Alberta. You know, in Manitoba, there's only one association that represents all municipalities, and I think that's that that's a, that's a positive because then you can understand. Like the issues about gas wells, I don't understand. And building a bridge or a gravel road, I don't understand, but I would like to. And I would like to have those conversations. Mayor Thorne? 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that to build on what Kathy has said is that we seem to always want to put labels on everything. So we want to say that I'm, you know, rural or that I'm urban instead of just saying we're a municipality. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you represent a municipal district, a town, a city, a village, a summer village, or honestly, the province of Alberta as an MLA or an MP. The goal should be to deliver viable communities and places that people want to live, regardless of where that is. But I think we also need to talk about where do people live? You know, um, 70, about 70% of Albertans live in cities. Another 11% are in towns. Then you've got another 11% that are in municipal districts. So to say that there is this easy urban rural split there isn't because that's the population is in different places but if you ask somebody in you know Clareso they're in a, a center that's 5,000 people um, they live in rural Alberta you know so but at the end of the day their mission is exactly the same as mine in Okotoks that has 30,000 people um, and that's to build a community that people want to stay in return to and can thrive in whether that's through you know education opportunities uh activities for their kids local business that they can shop at and and not have to travel to major centers every day just to get groceries so it should be about the viability of communities and then i think on the bigger piece of it that we need to talk about is how do we as a province and as municipalities effectively deliver the services that albertans want in the most efficient manner. And so, you know, a recreation center in every municipality, the 300 municipalities, isn't viable. Huh. It's not cost effective. We can't afford it. So how do we do that better? And how do we work together better, which is where you see all of us talking about partnerships. Um, and it shouldn't matter the type of municipality you are and whether you're in an urban or a rural. It's about how do we deliver to those people that don't have any idea that they've crossed the border of Okotoks into the border of my neighboring county of Foothills County. They just know that they live near Okotoks. Mm. They don't care who their government is. At the end of the day, they want recreation activities for the kids. Yeah, beautiful part of the province, by the way. It's been too long since I've rolled through Okotoks. It's always... Oh, it's, well, you come and I'll get you. I'll hook you up with dinner and coffee, Ryan. I'll oh, give you the tour. Oh, man, I'll tell you. It was always, it was to me, it was like it was like Okotoks and then the Cowboy Trail. And these are all these wonderful memories of exploring mm-hmm. Southern Alberta. And, and, and anyway, I digress. I can t- I can go down memory lane some other time. Um, Councillor Bressy, let me put this one in front of you, but I'm sure all three of you you're going to want to chime in on this. I love when it, when an audience member gives us something to really chew on. And Alyssa is tuned in uh, from Calgary, and she says, "As a Calgarian, I would like my tax dollars to stop subsidizing rural areas. I'd like to actually receive more tax dollars back." Look at Mayor Heron's just chomping at the bit. She says, "I would like to actually receive more tax dollars back for the city." Uh, Dylan, what would you say to Alyssa? You know. I find this whole conversation frustrating because you, a few of you describe me as urban and I don't know if I describe myself as urban. Okay. Sure, I'm a city counselor. Yeah. I'm a latte drinking, minivan driving soccer dad. <laughs> but I also desperately need fiber to my house. And I'm regularly driving four and a half hours down the highway to Edmonton. And yeah. so am I rural? Am I urban? And when we're saying, hey, we want our tax dollars to stay in Calgary, Edmonton, does that mean you're 
taking tax dollars from Grand Prairie to do that because I'll tell you, our oil and gas play in Grand Prairie is funding the province right now. And even as an urban guy, I don't have an issue paying my fair share of getting power poles or getting roads or getting medical service out further north than me and out into the more rural areas because I know that's where my food comes from. I know that that's where I'm going to go to have fun on the weekend. I also know that as much as my city's the economic driver of the region, because that's where the people live, a lot of my residents are also going outside my municipality to work every day. And that's important. So for me, I don't care about urban, rural, Calgary versus the rest of the province, right versus left, municipalities versus the province versus the feds. I just want the people of Grand Prairie and the people of Okotoks and the people of Acme just to have good local services that are meeting their needs. I hate these labels that we as politicians always feel we need to put on things. Mm. Yeah. Acme doesn't get enough shouts out. I haven't, I haven't watched it. I think they, they had a great run with the Looney Tunes, right? And then the, the Acme was, I think, the manufacturer of most of the products that, that Wiley Coyote was purchasing to take down the Roadrunner. Uh, Acme, a really un, <laughs> under, un, under, uh, under-celebrated manufacturing giant. Uh, shout out to our audience members in Acme, Alberta. Big uh, profits from anvils. Big product. Yeah, yeah they, 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 they nailed, they cornered the anvil market in Acme, Alberta. Uh, Mayor Heron, uh, to get serious, you looked like you were just, you, you just couldn't, I, I had to go to Dylan first, but like, you, what do you say to Alyssa? I'm actually very glad you went to Dylan first. Uh, Dylan sat on one of our municipal finance committees and really understands um, the way the infrastructure funding from the province comes down to municipalities and how it's divided. So I'm really glad that is not my expertise um, and it, it is one of Dylan's. But I laugh because it's a conversation that like, much like Dylan, we're tired of, but it continues to perpetuate and it exists. One of the things that I can say um, th- that has been a bit of a positive in the last few years is regional government. Um, so Tanya is part of the Cap- uh, Calgary Regional Board and I'm part of the Edmonton Metro Region Board. Those kind of boards, when you work together, we're not sharing funding at all, but we are working together and getting a better understanding of the rural versus urban needs, if you want to call it that. Um, and that's that's a, that's a solution that I'd like to see explored much more as, as we go forward. Regional government, um, they do it in Ontario. Uh, they have they actually have a level that's uh, elected to the regional side. So, but... It is, it is, it's, it's about seeing our province as borderless and, and, and the transition between um, where you work and where you live, like St. Albert to Edmonton, you probably couldn't tell the difference, but there is a border. Um, and, and we want to keep our autonomy. And I, I, I highly approve of St. Albert remaining St. Albert and not becoming part of Edmonton. But the fact that we could do regional services like transit, um, really work in our favor to keep that autonomy but let the let the services and the money flow back and forth and so there's a, there's there are solutions out there and again i will say one more time if you want the solutions come to dylan and tanya and i we've got them hmm. um and and we were ready to work with whoever wants to hear our answers i'm gonna pop a garbage bag full of popcorn and start kick uh, kicking off conversation about edmonton annexing saint albert and see how that goes mayor <laughs> <laughs> <That'd> be, <laughs> that's maybe a bit of a local reference, but that ain't happening. That ain't ever happening. Uh, well, you can kick in my region. You can kick off that I want to annex the south end of Calgary. There I you go. We actually should annex the south end of Calgary, I and agree. it should become part of. Okay. I agree. There will always there's be a spot piece, in a this show's lineup for that. Yeah, the, there's a slight sliver right of the north side of Anthony Hende that's actually part of Edmonton, and we yeah. tried to annex it, and I was really looking forward to the headline. Yes. Hey, no, but let's get into the 
weeds out for a second. What what actually happened with that? I've never heard that. That's amazing. I know it's just a small piece, and I'm still going to try to go. The landowners don't want it. Our, uh, our offsite levies in St. Albert are quite high, but we'll we'll get there one day, I think. I like it. I like the swagger. Yeah. Uh, by the way, filmmaker <laughs> Mariah Braun uh, is tuned in, and and she can confirm, uh, Councillor Bressy, that your self assessment as the what was it latte sipping minivan driving soccer dad? Uh, she says I can confirm that uh, Dylan is exactly that, and so we appreciate your accuracy and your integrity. Uh, let, let me ask the three of you this, um, our, our, our fellow uh, Albertans that are watching this right now that are live streaming it from some rural communities are going to be seeing choppy video and there may be interruptions as their feeds are buffering. And, and of course, Alberta municipalities has long advocated, including on this program, uh, for reliable high speed Internet service for all municipalities. Now, the, the provincial government, the federal government committed uh, almost $800 million, something like $780 million in funding uh, for the Alberta broadband strategy just this year. But I know we're not in a position, I'm not suggesting, uh, Mayor Thorne, that we're in a position to, to, to you know, sort of wipe our hands and say job done, job finished, mission accomplished, but obviously a step in the right direction. Can, can you give us a sense of where this is at? Yeah, I think it's still, you know, we're moving in the right direction. There's funding there. Um, but it's about the execution, right? And how how do we actually get all of that actually in the ground and delivering it? You know, Dylan mentioned he wants fiber to his house, and and I forget that piece because I have fiber to my house, so I forget those nuances. And Dylan's in a center that's bigger than mine, um, so we don't. You know, I think we really need to get back to that conversation as the world has evolved. Um, fiber and internet connectivity should become a basic need service, just like phone service was when it first started out. And just like water and, and wastewater, it, it is a basic need um, in a lot of ways is being able to be connected to the rest of the world because that's the way the world connects now. Huh. Well, and it's interesting. You just, I'll give a shout out to Mariah, who's, who you mentioned. She's a young business leader in our community where her business, she just became fully self-employed and she's a talented storyteller. Mm -hmm. That is a whole new line of business in our economy that absolutely needs good connection. And I have no idea what Mariah's personal situation is with connectivity, but I can tell you entrepreneurs like her across the province need good internet. It's not just about quality of life. It's not just about education. It's so critical to our economy. Mm. Agreed. The three of you, it's wonderful to see your faces. Uh, Mayor Heron, are you, you're going right back into RMA meetings right now? I am, yep, for sure. All right, good stuff. Well, we appreciate the, the three of you taking time out of your morning to check in with us. These are always one of our more popular roundtables because, like I said in the introduction, uh, you are at the level of government that, that that people are obviously, I think, perceived to be most approachable. Uh, you're working on the things that are tangible and definable and that impact people on a daily basis. Of course, all three of you aligned and affiliated with Alberta municipalities. Our audience members can check out more about what this group is doing at A abmunis.ca. Give them a follow on social media as well. To the three of you, thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks very much, Ryan. You Here. got it. You got it. Uh, that's uh, Councillor Dylan Bressy out of the city of Grand Prairie. That's Mayor Tanya Thorne out of Okotoks. And of course, the president of Alberta Municipalities, that's Mayor Kathy Heron out of St. Albert. That would be, it, it's sort of like a like an administrative mm -hmm. thing. And most people, that when they talk about annexation and land use, mm -hmm. things like most people don't pay close attention. But I would love to see uh, just, just sort of from the popcorn element, St. Albert annexing land from Edmonton. That would be amazing. <laughs> oh that would be amazing. Gosh.
I love uh, it. I love those roundtables because it's always like it's eye opening for me. Because well, I grew up in a small town, but these are small communities. How do you describe small? Like, what, where you grew up? How many people there approximately? Where was it? Well, it, it, again, it got kind of uh, swallowed up. Yeah, by the GTA. It's just outside of Toronto, and now yeah. it's it's a part of a community called Durham. But when I grew up, it was just Bowmanville. It was very small, and they have the same kind of thoughts on. I guess kind of what Dylan said, like we wanted to keep our money and we mm. wanted to use it for our stuff. But uh, the chat is so fired up right now. I People love it. Are, People yeah, saying like, you know, you should get a, the same percentage of the taxes you're paying as bigger cities. But uh, there's all these problems. Like the hospital one's a big one for me. Like if you don't have a hospital an hour or two hours or even three, sometimes four hours away in a community, of like five to 7,000 people, don't you deserve one? But like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, yeah, and there's there's compelling points being made. And, and I appreciate Alyssa, first of all, t- tuning in. And second of all, kickstarting this and, and getting the conversation going. And and, uh, and 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 by the way, may I commend uh, the live chat right now for keeping it classy. Very. Uh, people are disagreeing, but keeping it classy and, and making great points. But it's uh, you know, conundrum, Alyssa sort right? of says, you know, people want to know, like, well, why, why does a community of 7,000 people get a hospital? Mm-hmm. Why should a community of 7,000 people get a hospital asset? Alyssa and then and then I see a great point back like Emma says well it's not just those and first of all there's no there's no community uh, in any province in Canada that has an enormous 600 bed hospital no. with full surgical no. suites and seven ambulance bays for 7,000 people that's just not the case and I understand but there are health care facilities yeah right? that's what I was gonna say yeah so smaller Emma says, yeah, Emma says it's not just those 7,000 people using that hospital, right? She says surrounding communities and visitors, you know, use it too. She says, I've required surgery in Banff, mm-hmm. and I was so thankful that they had their hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, pe- people, you know, David makes a great point. I appreciate him tuning in. Says smaller towns, rural communities deserve the same level of services as the big urban areas. Now that's when we can dig into because I'm not. It's a conundrum. Yeah. It's like, and he says, get, but, but David says, and it makes it. He says, when we start to hoard our wealth, we start to see our downfall. We need to take care of each other, and, and that's something I think we can probably all agree on. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, I was just saying, it's just you try to solve one problem and it kind of causes another one. But sure. like, you know, if you're living in a small community and you need like, like an accident happens, you need like. Something we saw with the Oilers last night, like say your wrist gets split open or something oh, like geez. you got to drive four hours to get a, a quick surgery that just but I understand how you couldn't like you said, you couldn't set up a, a huge facility for them. Right. But yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, gosh, I mean, it's it's you have to like as a human, we have these bleeding hearts. Mm hmm. And then when you start talking about things like finances and mill rates and taxes and obligations, then then you have to be a little bit more. Ooh, no politician is going to like me characterizing. I don't even really mean what I'm about to say, but you have to be a little bit more cold. You have to be a little bit more like when you're talking about deficits and expenditures and when you're talking about capital investments and when you're talking about hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. There are a lot of projects that would qualify as top priorities. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think of things like twinning highways, right? Twinning highways cost hundreds of millions. I mean, it depends on where you're talking about, and it depends on how much highway you're paving, and it depends on a lot of factors. But, you know, how do you justify twinning a highway for $800 million to a remote part of the province? Yeah. At the same time, what do you say to a bereaved family whose loved one was killed in a head-on collision 
in large part because the highway was not twinned, mm-hmm. right? When you, when you say to someone, well, why does a community of 7,000 people get this new healthcare facility? And then what do you say to the person whose parents want to age in place at the family farm and dad goes down with a heart attack or mom has a stroke and they need to get to a hospital as soon as possible? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the flip side as well. And this is where that kind of cold implication comes in where you say to people, well, are there certain trade-offs? Like we talk to people about policing. Yeah. Folks will say, I had a B&E on my rural property and RCMP took three hours to arrive or RCMP took 50 minutes to arrive. or mm-hmm. what? And then what will people in urban centers say? Well, that's the trade-off. If you mm-hmm. choose to live, and, and it sounds kind of cold, doesn't it? But like, at the same like time, when David said, but let me say this, like when David said that smaller towns deserve the same level of services, yeah. well, like response time to a police call in the urban center has got to be like six minutes or less Mm -hmm. you talk to firefighters they want to be on scene within six minutes of the call coming in approximately Mm -hmm. you're not going to get that in a rural community it's not realistic so i don't know you can't really deploy a big force to yeah like you can't have fire like okotoks for example like i was just looking up do they have a hospital Twenty-eight thousand people. Yeah, Okotoks has a hospital. Do they? Yeah. 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 I was just looking. At, I thought I saw like a care. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm saying I'm I'm saying that like with de- I'm saying that definitively with great confidence. Okay. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But and I'm then, assuming that Okotoks. I don't. I don't think that the that twenty-eight thousand people in Okotoks are traveling to South Calgary to go to the hospital. I don't think so. I just looked up Okotoks Hospital. Okotoks like, Hospital. Google. They've got the Health and Wellness it. Center. They that's got that's what I'm the saying. Medical Center. Yeah, the Okotoks Health and Wellness Center. So is that a hospital? I don't they've got, see. I don't they've got see urgent. Hospitals. They've got urgent care services. Uh, we're just referencing the AlbertaHealthServices.ca site. So guaranteed, someone's going to chime up. But like twenty-eight thousand people, you don't have a, a hospital, but you have two arenas in Okotoks. So it's like, you know what I mean? It just, yeah, it's just. There's so many. That's why I love having them on because. Yeah. There's just so many conundrums living in these small communities, so many problems, and you fix one, and then another one pops up. It's like, yeah, it's hard. So, oh, so, so Mayor Heron is is still on the chat, which I love. She's like sitting in the RMA meeting. Beautiful. She's still on the chat, which is amazing. Uh, hey, Mayor's got to be able to multitask. She says Airdrie doesn't have a hospital. They've got over seventy thousand people. See, that's that's yeah and i'm trying to think like i mean i grew up in calgary i'm trying to think where's the closest hospital is it the foothills the foothills hospital the airdrie that's still a trek man Mm -hmm. that's still a trek but what's a hospital a hospital is like a billion dollars actually i'm probably way a hospital is probably way more than a billion dollars that south calgary campus that they built that 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 hospital that you can like see from space basically i mean that is a monstrous development but of course you look at how calgary has been growing Mm -hmm. you want to talk about okotoks and high river and dewinton and all of the other southern alberta communities that are serviced by that you start to get a sense why they need having one but having to drive four hours somebody was saying to a hospital it just seems that's mind-boggling to me I, i don't think my wife would live she loves small town living and she wants to like live that dream one day of a you know a small self-sufficient little yeah. farm and i'm like i'm telling her some of these things when we do, when we talk to these people on the panels i'm like what if we have to drive 2 hours if we have an accident you what have if, to think about what that what if we have a problem an emergency and we need the police yeah we can't yeah. it's not like here no like it's the trade-offs right it's the trade-offs 
I mean, I love, you know, one of the other things I love is, is that conversations like this give us a sense of where people are watching from and chiming I'm in watching from people the are speaking on behalf like, of their own communities, and I love that. Face. I love it, right? Like, you know, Carrie says, for example, Sherwood Park doesn't have a full hospital. You know, is that a quick enough trip into Edmonton, I guess, right? You know, David pointing out that this government, the provincial government's made many promises to rural areas, and they're under-delivering. He says, but no matter who the representative is of the area, basic level of service for rural communities should be expected. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can zoom way out. We're talking to Alberta municipalities. We're talking about the province of Alberta, but you can even talk about federally, like Canada as a nation and, and how we serve remote communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, do I really want to open up the can right now talking about the CBC as an example no. of serving people in remote communities and how that's been the mandate of mm-hmm. the CBC and, and maybe it's been somewhat under delivering on that front or, or bastardized on that front. You, you talk about the cost of groceries or the cost of services in, in like Tuk 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 or other mm-hmm. northern communities. And what's the quick fix that some people I think that and, and I'll describe them as, as, as ignorant, um, not as a, like a slur, but in the sense of like, I don't think they've properly thought through the implications of the comment but you'll oftentimes hear people say well why don't you just move mm-hmm. you know if your community's dying on the vine if it costs you know 14 dollars to get a loaf of bread or if it costs 30 dollars for a watermelon mm-hmm. then why don't you just move to one of the cities and you're really opening up a can of worms if you want to talk about culturally historically right residential areas being underrepresented right in services so. exactly yeah. you hit the nail on the head and so I think that, you know, we get these sort of quick fix ideas of like, just move to the cities. But that's that's it's a very dismissive way. And I think it's an unhealthy way of viewing how services need to be dispersed. Hey, we're all about robust debate. And we know that this is an audience that's up for it as well. I guarantee we're going to get emails on this. And I love it. I can't wait to read them again. Maybe there'll be a trash talk email coming out of this trash talk. Do I need to tell you? I don't think so. Presented by our friends at local environmental services. In Alberta and Saskatchewan, they've been serving communities, rural and urban, for a quarter century. Still family-owned. Better service, better prices. They guarantee more support for local causes. You can view their services and, and, and meet their leadership group by clicking on Who is Local at localenvironmental.ca. This is a company that understands the importance of core values. I've seen them literally on the wall of Local Environmental HQ. I invite you to keep it local by visiting localenvironmental.ca today. We also want to give a big shout out to our friends at Friesen Brothers. Hey, John, there's kind of a theme here. Rural and urban. 16 (laughs) Alberta communities have been served by Friesen Brothers in some circumstances since 1955. And some of them, well, they're a little more recent. The connection, including their beautiful South Edmonton store. They call it the Rabbit Hill location. And I am thrilled to let you know again uh, that the entire team at Friesen Brothers celebrating a gold medal. Wow. At the Canadian Federation for Independent Grocers, they took a gold medal. Friesen Brothers is no stranger to hardware being recognized on the national stage. Mm. But this literally means that the industry itself has named the South Edmonton Friesen Brothers the best grocery store in Canada. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. I shop the, at the best grocery store in Canada? Literally. Well, I and think- the show that you work at is sponsored by the best damn grocery store in Canada. Nobody can contest my taste. Nobody can contest <laughs> your taste. And no one can contest the taste 
of the Red Seal Chefs at Friesen Brothers. You can check out what they're doing at Friesen.com. Uh, we're excited to wrap today's show with, with uh, a breath of fresh mountain air. And I'm so excited to let you know, of course, every Wednesday, you know, if you're a regular here on Real Talk, we, we head out to the mountains. Uh, presented by our friends at Tourism Jasper, it's My Jasper Memories. And today, John, I'm inviting everybody to take their plans for tomorrow and crumple them up and toss them. Why? Because tomorrow is a perfect day to head west or east, depending on where you are. Head to Jasper National Park. Why? Because Marmot Basin opens tomorrow. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I will describe what it's like to ski or ride Marmot as best I can for those that are listening on the podcast. But this is really one you're going to want to catch on YouTube because these are these are my photos, John. Oh, I posted this photo here uh, when I was just showing you in response to the, the people that when it gets colder out, people go hit the beaches and they all post the photos from their lawn chairs with their legs stretched out. But here in Canada. And I thought buckled <laughs> into a snowboard is where I want to be on a cold day, maybe with your best pal. This is my best man, Chivers, and this is my best buddy in the world, Wyatt Rudy. Two different adventures at Marmot Basin, wonderful memories. There's nothing like ripping big turns through the fresh powder that Marmot Basin sees, followed by an apres ski celebration for Wyatt Rudy. It was hot chocolate. Oh, And for Dad, it was a cold one. I thought you were going to say the flask that you carry when you're snowboarding. John, we do not condone that type of activity on the mountain at Marmot Basin. Why Marmot, though? We know you've got choices where you're going to ski or snowboard. Well, Marmot has the highest base elevation of all Canadian ski areas. Did you know that? The highest base elevation of all of them. Now, what does that mean? Well, quite frankly, it means... That at 1,698 meters, the ski chalet at the base offers absolutely incredible views of surrounding mountain ranges. Sometimes I just sit there and stare. To say nothing of the panoramic extravaganza that awaits at the upper lift drop-off. They've got the longest high-speed chair, the longest high-speed quad chair in the Canadian Rockies. Of course, their signature lift, the Canadian Rockies Express, travels more than two kilometers in under eight minutes. And it provides centralized access to all the hot spots on the mountain. So it's never been more convenient to get the entire family out and more importantly, to meet everybody for lunch. And of course, it's conveniently laid out to minimize walking time to and from your car. I love that. You know, some of these ski hills you go to, you're parking like a kilometer away I and people are that. walking in oh. ski boots and you're trying to carry everything. And it's yeah. a nightmare. Not at Marmot. The tiered parking lots mean you can practically ski right to your car. Uh, They're now part of the Mountain Collective as well, which means this ski pass gets you into the world's top ski resorts, including stunning Marmot Basin, which officially opens with a ton of snow, by the way, (laughs) tomorrow. That's Thursday, November 10th. And I can't wait to see you, Real Talkers out on the hill. Yeah. You can learn more at jasper.travel and of course visit Marmot Basin online and when you're out there in the lift line you let them know you're there because you heard about it on Real Talk. Coming up on tomorrow's show we got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to get deeper into the political analysis of what we saw in that by-election. Of course we're going to talk about the American midterm results as well. Some of them still up in the air and it could be that way for the next number of days. There are some tight 
races too close to call right now at the time that we're recording this episode of Real Talk. And then, of course, we want to remind you about Friday's show, a very special edition of Real Talk as our Real Talk roundtable presented by Urban Timber. We'll recognize the Canadian men and women that have served through the years as we pause uh, to recognize November 11th. It's Remembrance Day, of course, and we'll be here live doing our thing. There's a follow-up story from last year's Real Talk on November 11th, a meeting of sorts that happened involving three people, and they're all going to join us. It's a conversation you will not want to miss. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.